This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, judge me not by my works, the problem of labelling writers. So you might have guessed by our title um, that this is going to be a bit of an opinion piece. Yeah, definitely. There's no real... I mean, you can absolutely find evidence for everything we're saying, and you can probably find counter-evidence too if you want. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is kind of a just think and make your mind up thing, uh, which is what we're doing when we discuss this. But there's a few things that I've noticed that have kind of been growing in terms of how much they're irritating me. So this is where this one's come from. (laughs) So um, on the one hand, there is obviously a growing push towards assuming that writers write only to exercise personal demons um, and that you can learn who a writer is by reading their books um, and this is <laughs> immediate I'm, I'm already guilty of this because I'm just there like I feel like sometimes I read people's writing and I'm like I'm getting a really good impression of you um, yeah. but the problem with just automatically assuming this is that it does cause all kinds of problems um, which we are going to get into yeah and on the other hand the need to know where to put a book in a bookstore or which audience to show a book to, marketing in other words, mm-hmm. has led to authors being labelled in such a way that it buries the author and conversely often also the book, Yeah. Um, which causes a whole host of other problems. So we're basically tackling this in two sections. They are kind of connected mm. um, because it's the same set of assumptions and things behind each thing. Yeah. Uh, but it we are basically just having a look at why we form these assumptions and, and why what what goes wrong when you start forming them yeah absolutely um we would obviously love to know what you guys think of this um again this is quite a nebulous one which i think both of us kind of c- can go both ways on um in a lot of ways um so uh we are always open to further information opinions and thoughts uh, so please do get in contact with us So, um, as Jill said, this is kind of split into kind of two parts. So, um, I think we should probably begin by looking at judging an author by what they write. Yeah. Now, as Madeline just mentioned, at some point, basically everyone will do this. And I've certainly done it myself. Mm -hmm. I remember um, some of the books that really hit me as a child and as a teenager. And it made me think that author was almost like a, a another an extra parent figure or someone to look up to mm-hmm. um, or that they might know things about stuff that actually they had either no interest in it was just like a tiny bit of their books yeah absolutely. Um, or in, you know it was just like they were leading voices or experts on things that they weren't I mean I'm thinking of when I first became interested in sort of the occult and folklore very specifically was around when I was about 12 and I'd been reading The Whitby Witches mm. and then I read all of Robin Jarvis's other books that were available at the time and I think I might have even joined his fan club. That is how big a nerd I was when <laughs> I joined his fan club. Bear in mind, this was pre-email, this was pre-internet. There was no other way you could sort of access an author, um, which is another complication, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it was a case of no, I want to know how he found these things. Um, I want to know what his thoughts on it. It's very specifically his thoughts. 
Um, obviously, I didn't turn into a, like a, a child stalker of this adult, <laughs> but much to Mr. Jarvis's relief, no doubt, if he'd known about it. Um, but I understand that feeling, that sense of reading a book and feeling a kinship with the person who provided you with this wonderful method of escape. I, I completely get it. Yeah. I'm sure the real Robin Jarvis, and in fact, I know the real Robin Jarvis, um, having interacted with him a fair bit on Twitter and had a little bit of a back and forth, yeah, he seems like a great bloke. He was clearly worthy of my childhood in admiration. But he's not the person that 12-year-old Jules would have, would have hero-worshipped, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it makes total sense. Um, and it's I think, also feeds into a phenomenon which we have discussed in the past, which is people becoming very attached to... Uh, celebrities and other sort of creatives and feeling like they really know them and then being disproportionately angry and disappointed when this person doesn't sort of fulfill their their kind of their head canon as it were or they yeah, make definitely. mistakes or things like that which people are want to do um, and the problem with the way that, as we'll discuss further, the way that we kind of have access to a lot of these celebrities and stuff like that, and also how we access them or make assumptions about them through their art, uh, means that we can feel like we know them when we have only seen a very particularly filtered idea of them or perhaps none of them at all. Yeah, absolutely. And. Um... The other thing that comes with that sense of knowing and that sense of kinship, which might be entirely one-sided, is the fact that you start to feel that you have some kind of ownership, which is always a very slippery slope. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you only have to look at, say, people like Rebel Wilson or Adele, mm -hmm. who very much were kind of, you know, were sort of heralded as icons. And they're both very talented people. They both seem to be pretty well-adjusted funny people as well but the problem is that certain groups within you know the the community who loved their music or their acting or whatever felt entitled to them and entitled to comment on their bodies to the point where they did both these people decided they wanted to lose weight and the amount of shit they got for deciding they wanted to change their own bodies and address their own health issues yeah it's unbelievable so it's that same thing. And I'm not saying that the authors get the same... Well, in fact, some authors do get the same sort of shit, but we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, now, as we said, in reality, when you read a book, the weighting of this connection is obviously very heavily skewered towards you, the reader. The writer has done their part by creating the book and then pretty much left sort of the building they, they're gone they're out yeah absolutely particularly if it's fiction i mean if you're writing non-fiction then the contract between you and the reader is i will try to be objective and i will try to be factual and accurate within a certain set of parameters if it's fiction what you're doing is saying come with me i will take you on an imaginary journey and hopefully show you something that you haven't seen before yeah now, this is really where Roland Barth comes in on his little slime trail. Um, because, and I hate to say this, I hate to give him the credit, but he's got a point when he talks yes. about the death of the author. Um, much of, of how you will read a book and how you will experience it and how you will understand it will be dependent on the 
the literary lenses you apply to it and the literary lenses you apply to it um, whether you decide to do that, you know, you could say, well, I'm going to do a, a, a Marxist reading of this, etc. So you can do it on purpose, but you will also have subconscious lenses uh, based on your experiences, on your life, etc. You cannot, it's, well, you can sort of, you can try to separate yourself from some of these by being conscious of them. But at the end of the day, everybody is going to read a book differently. Everybody's going to interpret it differently. Um, and you might even interpret it differently at different times. Um, if you feel very, very connected to a book or on the opposite side, if you feel you have to you feel totally disconnected from a book or very angry at a book, you start to make you know, that's based on your impression and therefore your impression of the person who created it. Sometimes you might be right in certain things, but it is only based on what you yourself have experienced from this book. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things, I mean, reading is an incredibly personal thing anyway. Um, and it's something that's sort of really... Uh, as I say later on, it's, it's something, it's basically a shortcut to the psyche. Yeah. Um, a book that you really connect with can give you insights into yourself and into the world. And it's no wonder that, you know, I've got books that are kind of like comfort blankets. Yeah. As in, I just want to disappear into that world again. Um, okay, admittedly, one of them is The Stand, and that's not a, you know, great safe <laughs> world to disappear into. But I, you know, I need it. I need it when things are bad. So, um, you know, obviously, Madeline, I completely get it, but this idea that you know the author by reading their work is not... Unfortunately, it is an assumption. And, and we're the same. We have authors that we think, oh, they're really cool, they're brilliant. They might be absolute shitty people in real life, or they might be saints. We don't know. We probably will never know. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's not to say that you can't befriend a writer or yeah. an author. To be honest, I mean, I find offerings of tea and cheese go down very well. Yes, I have also found that very particularly with Jules. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jules's birthday. What do I get her? I know. <laughs> tea, cheese, fine. Occasional chocolate, approach from a safe distance and treat the writer like a human being. <laughs> yeah, you'd be amazed how many people fail on that last pretty critical step there are things where it just the way that some people think it's okay to approach any celebrity and oh you know most writers are not celebrities no. which is not but within I suppose the reading and writing community we're, we're sort of a proxy and the way some people think it's okay to approach an author it just genuinely makes me go have you had any interaction with other people <laughs> members of your own species before genuinely want to know <laughs> today on human interactions don't do that <laughs> and i say this as somebody who is blunt and is not always you know the best person to have around in a social situation just because she doesn't really like a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> but i do seem I, I do have basic manners i do understand basic social etiquette and i'm not talking about people who maybe just don't get social cues i'm talking about people who clearly do and just ignore them yeah yeah and look everybody can get excited you can get overexcited and then feel like i think i was a bit of a prat or you know i think 
that's very understandable particularly if you're meeting someone whom you admire and i know because i have definitely been in that situation and i have 100 percent also sometimes felt like particularly when jules and i were first getting to know each other um i was like madeleine you need to calm you need to cool it down a little bit because um (laughs) she's going to think you are a maniac (laughs) It's like, yeah, lay back, be chill. And I was thinking kind of the same thing, to be honest. So, not that you were a maniac, but I was. like to just add that. Good um, but I mean, to be fair, Madeline and me were kind of like a rare thing, as mm-hmm. in there will always be a few people in your life who you click with pretty much immediately. Yeah. And, you know, you'll have a friendship and it just goes forward from there. And that's great. And you should definitely cherish that when it happens. But the chances of that happening with your favourite writers every single time is... Um, quite slim it's quite slim to be honest yeah <laughs> so um yeah this is just basically a little bit of backstory but uh, and i will just add here again calling myself out if you like i understand what it's like when you love something and it's very undersung and you kind of want to keep it for yourself it's your precious and then suddenly it hits the big time and everybody's reading it and they're reading it wrong yes <laughs> <laughs> that, that they clearly don't understand they didn't get the uh, the hours of nuance that you got from it they didn't get the soul alchemy from it that you got from it and now everyone's popular and there's a film being made and they're making that wrong too yeah it's like, i get it i completely get it because that was yours first it's... and nobody can take that away from you but yeah it's it's when yeah you're just there like a oh th- this all makes so much sense and then someone else just comes up and is like a xyz and you're thinking what no what are you talking about i think it's all that's sort of largely i think why there are some people who are so offended when you know it comes to someone saying oh yeah i think this character is you know uh x y or z and other people who feel like they've really understood understood the novel um or understood the film or whatever just think what where are you getting this from no that's not who they are at all because they feel another form of connection with it and it's not that anybody's technically wrong when it comes to interpretations um but anyway we're not going to be talking about maybe we'll come back to that on another occasion we'll come back to that on another occasion because that's a whole other kettle of barnabies um (laughs) (laughs) don't know where that came from but hey ho um i should have said barnacles because that would have been that's probably what i wanted to say well, it's a bit more fishy, I guess. Yeah, a little bit more fishy. But there we go. Whole, whole anyway. other kettle of Barnabies. Um, that's that's a saying now. Um, yes. So, but yeah, so I think we've, I think everybody's kind of gone, well, I liked it before it was cool um, with something um, and felt very defensive about other people kind of getting their grubby little mitts on it. And it's like, you know, again, we get it. And I think when they made Game of Thrones the series... There are a lot of um, long-term GOT fans who are kind of like, no, yeah, <laughs> that horse was supposed to be brown, not grey, kind of thing. Yeah, and and I think even George R. R. Martin. In fact, this is the thing with the writers. The writers are normally going, well, that wasn't actually an important detail. That was just to give you a little bit of visual detail. It wasn't something that was like a major plot point. Yeah. So, 
but yeah, again, and that's the thing is that we also we put substance into books. The amount of times, <laughs> and I know lots of other writers have had this experience. Where people are like, I love the way you did this, this, and this. Therefore, highlighting this, and you're like, yes, <laughs> yes, I did that on purpose. <laughs> I really I think sometimes I did genuinely think it out, and it. You know, it, it absolutely thrills me when someone goes, oh, I got that. Did you mean that? And it's it's amazing. But there are times when people come out and say things and I'm like, I'm really glad you got that from it. I genuinely am. And it's obviously made you really happy, but I can't honestly say I did it on purpose. <laughs> and then I'm always really sort of a little bit sad when it's like, I did something really cool there. I know it's really cool, but nobody said anything about it. And everybody <laughs> missed it. <laughs> It's just like, no, they probably haven't. They just, it's not as important to them as it was to you. Yeah, so, exactly. There you go. Okay, so what do we mean by judging an author by what they write? Well, um, one example is we, it's when you basically fail to understand that books are often thought experiments. Mm. So someone who writes a gory crime or serial killer novel usually doesn't have any desire to murder someone. Usually. Usually. <laughs> Writing a book is not how they control the impulse. And I think... You know, that's kind of in a nutshell of how some people seem to read books, as in they'll read something and think the author is a terrible person because they've got a main character who's a rapist yeah, um, or a main character who is a serial killer or a main character who is absolutely fine for like 90% of the book and then does something absolutely terrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like the main character is not the author. The author is not the main character. Yeah. Now, people are obviously allowed to like or dislike things, um, but it is about understanding that there is a separation. Um, and there are times when I think it's appropriate to call people out. Um, yeah. But I also think that there are lots of occasions where, where this judgment goes way beyond actually. It takes things a lot of things out of context. Um, and doesn't actually consider sort of larger aspects. Uh, for instance, here's a good example. Uh, Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah. Um, I was actually talking to my dad about this because uh, he read one of the books um, that I gave him of Scott's Fit Scott Fitzgerald. And I cannot now remember what the book title is called, um, but essentially it revolves around, as do most of his books, um, very rich, deplorable people. Yeah. Um, and within this sort of book, um, you're going through it and you're going, this shouldn't be the ending. This shouldn't be what happens. How can he get away with this? And he does. Um, now, this is not, therefore, Scott Fitzgerald necessarily saying, aha, yes, because I'm actually on this asshole side the whole time. It's him saying, this is what society is like. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It's the, uh... Was it? It's either the Great Gatsby or Tender is the Night, but you know, there's he had a lot of criticism over one of those two mm. and various others as well. And I think the actual the title that we've sort of paraphrased is actually F. Scott Fitzgerald saying, um, "Judge me not by my works," because and he was actually quite a quiet, retiring sort of man. Yes. <laughs> and yes, um, maybe there's a certain amount of wish fulfillment in writing about these larger than life, fabulous characters who are really living a, a lush lifestyle and doing terrible things mm. being deplorable people um but you couldn't say that f scott fitzgerald was anything like you know 
Daisy Buchanan, for example. No, absolutely not. Or Gatsby himself. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, the whole thing where writers get confused with their most notorious or popular main character sort of comes in a bit here, I think, as well. So um, I read a blog post by Mark Lawrence. Everyone knows I'm a Mark Lawrence fan. I've made no secret of that fact at all. <laughs> and um, my gateway drug was the Prince of Thorns, which is part of the Broken Empire trilogy, Yeah, which you could argue is his only real grimdark type yeah. trilogy. And he's not really gone back to that sort of character since then. But the main character, Jorg Ankrath, is not supposed to be a good guy. He is absolutely an anti-hero. Yeah. And he starts off as a a 14 year old boy who's leading this band of men and they are doing what bands of brigands do they are pillaging and raping and it's not and not of it, a lot of it is on screen but it's mm. kind of or on page rather but it is definite he's aware of what what his men are doing and at 14 he's callow and some shit has happened in his past and he's kind of like not not really putting an end to it because his purpose is to have this band of men feared yeah and one way of doing that is to use the blunt instrument in this way. I mean, it, before anyone gets really up on their high horse about this, this is exactly what um, our European armies did for centuries to each other. They did they did punishment raids on each other, mm. chevauchés. So you know, for example, um, Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fifth. Sorry, not Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth did not do a chevauché. <laughs> Henry the Fifth. Um, a kind of allowed a chevauché in in France before Agincourt and just afterwards and various others right up until the full conquest. So, you know, it's something that has been done. Nobody's saying it's a good thing. We're just saying it is a thing. It's a tool in, in the chest of war, if you like. Yes. Um, but he got a lot of shit over um, Jorg Ankrath. So many people loved the series because it is an amazing series, but so many people were kind of like, oh, you must be a terrible person, you're a despicable man, etc. And Mark Lawrence is kind of like, um, I'm a biochemist who spends a lot of his time looking after his disabled daughter who will never be able to live independently. I don't see how you can actually confuse me with my main character. You haven't, you know, this is not information that I've kept back, it's actually out there, you know about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, it is, it's just this over-reliance on things being simpler than they are. Yeah. I think. Which is ironic when, it's it's ironic when the whole point of a novel is to bring nuance to something. Yeah. Or most novels, let's be honest. Yes. And look, I think we can all agree, sometimes authors mi miss the mark. And there yeah, are absolutely. usually when they miss the mark, they will turn around and say, "Actually, I think I'm I'm wrong. I was wrong on that one." Um, but even if an author has missed the mark, that doesn't mean that they are inherently a terrible, evil person, or that they were trying to do harm. Yeah, definitely. Um, another example. This is obviously going back a couple of hundred years, but um, Charlotte Bronte, hmm. uh, when Jane Eyre became the sensation of the season and everybody was reading it even though she got some terrible reviews saying that she that her book was coarse etc and not not proper and not really literary um when she went and stayed in london with elizabeth gaskell and she um, met up with some various other writers you know the the kind of the the writer glitterati of the time if you like <laughs> and she was at 
uh, a party and she went along and people assumed that she would be like Jane Eyre, that she would actually be um, very witty and sharp and come off the page like Jane Eyre does in the book. Yeah. Even though um, I do wonder at the people, I mean, Charlotte Bronte must have been sat there going, okay, first of all, you're confusing me with my main character. In fact, one of the ladies even go, even apparently said, we have Jane Eyre with us this evening rather than we have Charlotte Bronte with us this evening. Um, and Charlotte Bronte was very shy, particularly in company. Mm. And there she was in this party of all these fashionable people. I mean, think of the, the party where you would be most uncomfortable and it's basically an equivalent of this. <laughs> and maybe you're not a sociable person, really, and you're quite shy and you just you can't just whip out a, a cutting remark off the cuff, but you're very witty on page. Yeah. So it was basically like that, and she that they all started complaining while she was still there that she actually wasn't very entertaining in person. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, I'm completely sympathetic with Charlotte Bronte in this one because they shoved her into a situation that she was not really prepared, suited, or desired to be in. Yeah. And then they kind of insulted her with their high and mighty manners Mm -hmm. and she must have been sat there thinking and on top of that you're confusing me with my main character and you've read my main character wrong because the whole point of Jane Eyre is she is actually very shy and retiring you're just inside her head for the entire book yes yeah absolutely (laughs) you know you didn't actually understand what I was writing at all so it's kind of a pearls before swine situation (laughs) yeah um and to be honest, I you know, I think I feel like we can we all do this to a certain degree. Um like hell, even I uh to to a certain extent when I was first sort of reading um I Belong to the Earth, um and I found out that Jules had sisters, I immediately went, Oh, so you're the middle you're the middle sister. Yeah. Um because I immediately went, oh, so just like Emmeline. Um, and <laughs> I think we can like, all do it. You just make assumptions. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, absolutely, I would have drawn on my experiences in having sisters and being part of this this group of three. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I know you, you didn't really believe me to start when I said, no, I'm far more like Grace. And you're like, no. <laughs> no, no, really. No, really. Far, I mean, obviously, I've exaggerated things, but if I had to pick one, I'm not really like any of them. I would pick Grace because that, that whole sort of do not fuck with me and I will say whatever I like attitude is definitely me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it was it's amazing as well because obviously also the way I read Grace to begin with was, I mean very negative um, until I got a better kind of idea of who she actually genuinely was and a different perspective that came from actually knowing Jules. So, you know, it people do make assumptions. It's kind of just, well, it's a large part of the human condition, I think, making sort of assumptions, really. Um, but, yeah, you, you do need to be careful of them and you do need to be conscious of them. Yeah, I think that it's not necessarily even harmful if you read something and make an assumption until you're making an assumption on someone's character and acting on it. So you read a book you don't like and you assume that that person must either be stupid or um, cruel, not very, yeah. not very witty or whatever. And 
and it's just a, a problem. So, I mean, looking at authors getting labelled as racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, etc., because they might include slurs or mindsets in their book which are appropriate for the setting, time period, or viewpoint character. Yeah. Um, this is something Stephen King's fallen foul of a lot. And he would be the first to say that, yeah, in some of his early books, definitely there's a few clunkers in there. Yeah. But he's, you know, he's got 40 plus years of back catalogue, so it's not really surprising. It's interesting because he even, he even, he made a statement once, which he said, I have always been more, uh, I've always been a writer more of the times than I wished. And he is very affected by the periods in which he's writing. Um, and I have read things of, of, of his where I've gone this, you know, the, the kind of, there's a bit of an uncomfortable homophobic sentiment or something like that. But at no point have I immediately then gone, ah, he's homophobic because we know by record of how he behaves, how he speaks, what he advocates, that he isn't. Yeah. And it's not like you have to really look very far to see lectures by Stephen King where he's given a guest lecture or something or talks or you can go on YouTube and find interviews by him um, snippets and things where he's been interacting with his sons etc and yet there is a section and I will say it's a section of a particular part of the feminist movement Mm -hmm. who are really really against him yeah who um, I think he got described as a six foot something grotesquely ugly man which I thought was a weird way to open your argument about him being being misogynist who body shames women. I thought that was very, very strange as an angle to tackle that from. Um, but it's, <laughs> there's, there's so many things he gets criticised for and I'm just like, I actually don't think that is there. I think you are absolutely reading that through the filter of, of what you personally think or fear. Yeah. I mean, and as you say, he's the first to admit and say, yeah, you know what, I've I've put in some shit that maybe, in hindsight, as a writer 40 years on, I perhaps wouldn't have written it that way. Yeah. And like, and that is the thing is that this this will be the case for everybody. Almost anybody will look back at their past writing and be like, oh, and that is actually ultimately what you want. Because what you yeah. want is for things to have changed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we've talked before about how authors can use writing as wish fulfillment or, you know, some characters are in fact self-inserts. But most books do not reflect the people who wrote them at all. No. And yes, all writers put a little something of themselves in their work. And sometimes things sneak in that you didn't intend to sneak in. Yes. But it's never a one-to-one ratio, so you couldn't read. You, you could read all of my books, and you wouldn't necessarily actually know me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the other thing is that you know you could be listening. To, you could have listened to every single episode of Dissecting Dragons. <laughs> yeah, and you could still not actually know Jules or or I. You know. Yeah, and we're pretty open. When, yeah, you know, we obviously have things we keep private that you know isn't for anyone else's edification or purview but at the same time we're relatively open we've changed our opinions many times on this show yeah or adjusted them they've definitely swung back and forth a little bit i agree yeah which is you know a good thing that's what opinions should do you should not have an opinion and it just stays fixed forever that's not usually a good sign Mm, yeah no it is and and 
you know, I, it's quite interesting in that sometimes I, I sort of, I will go back here clips from sort of very old episodes and be like, wow, really? Is that me? <laughs> because things will have changed or I will feel different or I will have a whole new perspective on it, which I will feel like I always knew, you know, um, was always obvious and yet it wasn't. So yeah, it is an interesting, an interesting part of well life really yeah i think where i do get a sort of knee-jerk bit of irritation is when you have someone who reads something very shallowly and then makes a value judgment on the author and assumes the author is like that book or that character it's the same as if they looked at an actor who was playing an unsavory character let's say um think of there are various actors who've taken on difficult roles where they've played paedophiles, for example. Do we more automatically assume that that actor is actually indeed um, a child sex offender? And and the answer is no, in most cases. <laughs> or for the vast majority of cases, in fact. So, you know, they're showing you things that are supposed to make you horrified and angry and disgusted, and writers are doing the same thing with certain of their books and characters and things. Mm. You're not supposed to then think, oh, well, this equals this. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't like, as you say, the oversimplification, that shallow understanding that doesn't seek to question anything further. Yeah, absolutely. It's just things are just so much more complicated, usually. Um, and I... I you know, I am all for for saying if something makes you uncomfortable, if there is a topic or, you know, something which you feel like you really don't want to read about, don't want to hear about, etc. I totally respect that. But you cannot punish other people for choosing to write or address those issues. You can only be in charge of your own experience and you have every right to be in charge of your own experience and you have the right to, you know, if you've asked people to respect that, to, for it to be respected, but you don't have the right to judge others um, for that kind of thing, for, do, for, for something like that, I don't feel. Yeah, absolutely. You can only captain your own ship. Yes. <laughs> Boiling it down and oversimplifying. <laughs> and captain it well. <laughs> captain it well, yes. Okay, so the second part of our issue here is labelling authors based on an aspect of themselves as individuals. So we've all seen this this sort of this queer queer main character, lots of diversity written by a queer author or similar. And yeah, okay, so far so good. Um if readers are looking for that specific set of circumstances, then that labelling is helpful to the reader. Mm -hmm. But there's a big but. And that is that there's no nuance. It's reductive. Um, I remember reading an interview that N.K. Jemison wrote. And she was at, I think it was a Comic-Con or it would have been like a world sci-fi fantasy type book fair type thing. Mm -hmm. And she and another author were seated together. This other author, I mean, N.K. Jemison writes sort of, she writes fantasy and it's very deep epic-y fantasy but it it doesn't have its roots in sort of Tolkien-esque type yeah sort of scenario and it, a lot of her fantasy asks deep questions about the human condition so it's very sort of it's not quite literary but it's somewhere along those lines so if you see what I mean yeah the person she was seated with wrote military sci-fi 
and she said I had a lovely evening with him we had a wonderful talk um, the readers came through and spoke to us it was great it was a great evening but she couldn't help noticing that there were at least six other people in the room who wrote similar books to her who she would have been a better fit for in terms of as a table mate yes and the same for him and it this and in the end they asked the organizer sort of like well i had a great evening with so and so but you know why did you seat us together because i write this and he writes that and they said oh but you've got so much in common and then when they actually looked at what they had in common it was that they were both black so they put the both the black authors sat together that um, is yeah <laughs> and wow. it, you could change that you could make that we put both the the queer authors together both the trans authors together never mind that one of them writes fantasy regency romance and the other one writes military sci-fi you know it's kind of those slender aspects of someone's um individual personality that's not actually an individual it's not actually an aspect of their personality even it's or, or what they write or their work it's just an aspect it's a fact yeah you know and i think actually i weirdly enough and perhaps i'm wrong here but i i feel like this is actually something that hamish Steele mentioned with regards to some of his own experience at sort of Comic-Cons and stuff like that as well, way, way, way back when we had uh, Hamish on the show. Um, and it, it it does make me laugh a little bit because um, <laughs> it, it is this, you know, on the one level there's a, okay, actually, in a busy place, uh, I perhaps I'm with somebody who's part, if I'm part of a minority community and I'm with somebody who's also part of that minority community, and perhaps that makes me feel safer um you know perhaps there's a sense of connection but to be honest if it's if you're there and you're there to do you know to talk about a book or something like that i mean just just angling it down to ah black author or lgbt author um it doesn't make any logical sense and it ends up as jules pointed out with kind of authors sort of being tucked away into the corner which is and it's yeah yeah it's, i don't think it's intentional prejudice either it's just kind of like oh this is an important thing we must mm. look at this thing who can we put them with who'll be a good match ignoring six perfectly good matches yeah because they don't share the same sexuality or or ethnicity or whatever and it's just it's it's arsewise backwards in my opinion because the thing the important thing was what they write yeah and it's a very different thing, for example, if say, okay, we're going to do a panel which is specifically about sort of uh, writing as a black person, then it doesn't really matter if they're writing different genres. But if you're like, we're going to do a panel for books and you just say, and <laughs> what are you supposed to do with that? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's just really unhelpful. <laughs> it's kind of like, what do you write? I write military sci-fi. What do you write? Well, I write really deep dive humanitarian type fantasy cool we have literally nothing in common (laughs) okay it's just they're like well Um, i i I write a (laughs) it's the moment where you've got someone who's just they're like oh yes well i write very you know thick luscious literary fiction and someone else is like well i write paranormal romance and werewolf porn but we are both gay so (laughs) It's like, wow, we have so much in common. <laughs> oh. So, uh, yeah, again, I don't think any harm is intended. I think it's just that 
people are focusing on the wrong things. And this this is my my hot take. This is my theory. I could be completely wrong. And if you think I'm wrong, deconstruct my argument. Mm. Um, this is to everyone, not just Madeline. I'm sure she will. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't help feeling that this attitude has slightly come out of the, the interdepartmental politics you get in universities, their literary departments. So, for example... Um, I'm trying to remember the African, and he was actually an African author, not just, you know, I'll get into that another time. But he, was an, he was an African author, and he said there should be one department, and it should just have literature on it. He said, because the whole point of a novel is to reveal truths to you in the form, through the medium of lies. And so you should have everything under one roof, and it should be accessible to everyone. We shouldn't just be slicing it and looking at things through a, spe a specific lens um, because the point of literature is to bring us all together mm. ultimately by sharing experiences and I actually agree with that um, obviously I did not study English literature or any kind of literature at university level but I do understand this this desire to sort of go ah well this is African literature and this is Russian literature etc etc mm. and yes that's useful labelling but that's labelling in the same way that marketing is useful labelling in the sense of ah we, we will look at Anna Karenina in this particular module um, so when you then start drawing battle lines between departments and there's all this jostling for space and things I think it, again that becomes reductive and you stop forget you forget that you're actually all on the same team it's a really interesting perspective um, and I guess I'm a little bit in two minds about it because on the one side I, I totally agree um, but on the other side you know there is the practicality element of it um, <laughs> and uh, you know as you say you know it's drawing those lines just so that people kind of know where they where they stand where you know if it's particular points of interest etc um i do feel as if sometimes you're right that the the way that the sort of the the battle lines kind of end up being drawn uh starts to feel very much like um well i think i feel like sometimes people then start to try to fulfill things uh for the sake of the fulfillment of it if that makes sense rather than because it makes sense yeah, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think one does need to be conscious of it. Um, and I also think um, one cannot be pretentious with it, which I think is very easy to be. This is the problem with universities, um, is that sometimes, and I love, I love universities, um, I really feel very privileged to be teaching at one, but sometimes you can sort of end up falling a little bit for your own mythology, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes sense that that would happen for everyone, the staff and the students, because mm. you're in an environment which focuses on intellect. So it's quite understandable that at a certain point you might start valuing intellect over, you know, little concerns like common sense when it comes to de interdepartmental sort of sharing. Yeah. Does that make sense? And, uh, I say this is an outsider. Yeah, but the, the thing is that, you know, we have, uh, we, we talked a little bit about this um, with, uh, you know, when we talked about sort of the dark um, uh, academia. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I guess because I work within a sector of sort of what is essentially the English department, because creative writing is um, is a type of, of study of English. Um, but the emphasis is obviously on the use of words um, on and on the handling of words. Um, I think, and I haven't really witnessed this at myself personally I don't feel but I've kind of seen elements of it you know in the you know in the in the ether um of pretentiousness regarding <laughs> people who are like oh yes but I do actual English literature you you write little bits and I'm just there like really <laughs> So yeah. you're looking down on someone. You're like, yes, well, I look at, I, 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 you know, we read, we study books, and we're like, and we write them. What? <laughs> Why are you getting like weird we, about this? That like we've actually got more in common than, than we've not got in common. Yeah, and there's so much crossover. They're like, oh yes, well, we study this, and I'm like, so do we. It's just, it's literally just a slight matter of approach, um, and the application. Um, and it's the same thing in that it's people turning around and saying, sort of like, oh, well, they're not nearly as, you know, they're not as creative. And this is the problem with having the word creative writing in a, as the sort of the title, um, is that it sort of creates this sense of, well, we own this now. Uh, we are yes. the creative ones and you are the non-creative ones. You don't have any creative thoughts. And that's just absolute nonsense. Like creativity is only ever looks like one thing it only ever has one particular flavor which is not true um and demonstrably not true as well which i think is the funniest part of it all for me yeah i mean i've got to say having come out of the sciences the look you get from people who are like oh so what did you start off doing and you say oh, genetics and plant biology and the, the horror when they realize that <laughs> They expect you to say English or maybe classics and history. They do not expect you to say science. It's kind of like, why have you left your lane? Go back. Well, I do remember getting into an argument with somebody um, and they asked if I was stupid. And I said, no, uh, I'm actually a lecturer. They asked if you, hang, hang on. They asked if you were stupid. Yes. Someone actually said. Yes. I'm not going to get into what the debate was about, but they they were they were being rather unpleasant. Let's just say it wasn't. It was less of a d debate and more of a of a shit show. But anyway, so they asked if I was stupid, um, and I said no, I'm not stupid. I'm a lecturer, um, and then they said, you know, they said if you're a lecturer of creative writing, you're not even a lecturer. Of this was to do with politics or something like that. They said, you know, you're not even an expert in this particular subject. And I said, I never claimed to be an expert in this particular subject. I claimed not to be stupid. <laughs> I'm basically, I'm demonstrating the fact that I have analytical skills, <laughs> which you need when talking about this particular subject. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, people really do get wed to their own bullshit. Mm. And I'm not saying that I'm guiltless in this respect no. because I know that I have a slight bent towards intellectual snobbery and I try and pull myself back and I try and laugh at myself. Laughing at yourself is a really good way of bringing yourself back down to earth. Yeah. 
I, I I frequently laugh at myself because I'm just there like, well, yes, I'm a I'm a lecturer, don't you know? Um, and then I laugh at myself because I will, um, I, I I will get onto a bus and say West Quay, please. <laughs> and they'll be like, West what? West Quay? Do you mean West Key? And I'm like, it's not how it's spelled. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll and I'll turn to my my partner. I'll be like, ah yes, um, hearth and home. And he's like, half. You mean half? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you've got to kind of remind yourself that we're all actually rather silly, and we all make mistakes, and we don't know everything. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yes. So sorry. Back to the back to the labelling. I mean, this is a really interesting discussion, and maybe we've even got some scope here to go into. This is another podcast that I will try and return to the topic yes. in hand. And it's my fault. I went off on a tangent. I do apologise. <laughs> no, no, it was me. It was my, The responsibility was mine. Um, but yes, the, the labelling thing. Um, part of the... Okay, there's there's lots of reasons why it's an issue. It, one of the, the, the problems, which I actually haven't written in my notes, is the fact that I think, and it, pair this with the whole ac- academia idea that we've just talked about, the fact that it sets up this idea that people can only write their own lived experiences. And actually, there is an issue against that because if you were, I don't know, if you were a cow chewing cud in a field, then yeah, you can absolutely say what it's like being a cow chewing cud in a field, but you probably can't write what it's like to look at a cow chewing cud in a field, Mm. if that makes any sense. So I think what we've always kind of come down on the side of is while there are some things it would be insensitive to try and take without serious consideration. I mean, just don't take wantonly without considering it. Mm. We have said, write whatever you want, but write it well, which means do your due diligence. I think it's largely the message we've always tried to put forward here. Yeah, Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I I think that... And it's one of those things which I do constantly challenge myself about and, um, you know, and I'm constantly listening to alternatives and and reconsidering it and wondering, is that enough, etc. And I think, again, the due, that falls under the, you know, do your due diligence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that ability to question yourself and say, am I just taking this selfishly? Am I to, do I actually really care enough Mm. is another thing and i don't know uh, there there are all sorts of questions you have to ask yourself but yeah the labeling thing authors are people they're not just queer or black or trans or asian or you know so again it, it's uh, yes it's perhaps useful in terms of cataloging if people go hey I want to read more by trans authors well that's great but within that not all trans authors are writing speculative fiction not all of them are writing literary fiction some of them in fact, many of them are not actually writing about a trans experience at all. Yeah. They may not even be writing about trans characters. Exactly. Many of them are not. Are we saying that black authors are not allowed to write white characters? Because yeah. that doesn't seem right. Well, this is, like, again, I remember this is um, uh, Essie uh, Parrish. Yeah. Who was talking about, who mentioned the fact that they... That she's she's a black author of um, sort of gothic horror fantasy, and um, 
she has been excluded from certain things because even though she's a black author, she's not writing about black characters. And I'm just there. It boggles the mind because <laughs> she's a real person. <laughs> if you're like, right, well, I want to support black authors. You can't just say, well, I'm only going to support the ones who have black characters. Um, because yeah, it makes no sense. It, it doesn't make any sense because then the characters aren't real, but the person is, the author is. Support them. Let them write what they want to write. You know? Yeah. And I suppose the thing, well, the thing is it does set up this false expectation as well, that labelling system. Mm. So here you go, let's, I want to read something by a trans author and I find myself a trans author who has written about a particular subsection of, I don't know, let's say uh, really intense sci-fi with spaceships. Yeah. That's what I want to read. Great. And the problem that the false expectation comes in is that no one person can represent even a tenth of a single minority's experiences. So I might go to that thinking, this is what I want, and I want trans characters, etc. And I want it in this perspective. I want it to fit my perspective. Subconsciously, that's what I'm thinking. I want something that endorses my perspectives. Yeah. And then I read it, and I'm disappointed because it doesn't reflect my experiences or whatever yeah meanwhile other and people that... like oh there's a trans author this is a book that's going to be all about trans issues uh, i don't actually want something that heavy i'm going to just completely avoid it when it doesn't even contain it at all yeah exactly i mean and the imp the important thing would be meanwhile the poor author's kind of like well i've got a story it's a good story you might enjoy the story do you like hard sci-fi do you like spaceships do you like epic galactic battles because if you like all those things chances are you're gonna like my book it doesn't really matter how i identify <laughs> yeah absolutely and i do think the problem with with the way that this labeling works is that sometimes it is kind of used as a little bit sort of a bit of virtue signaling and stuff like that yeah um, now i am really really all for supporting minority authors and creators and indie authors and stuff like that um, I love it I'm, I'm all for it um, but the problem is that when we put that forward as the most important aspect rather than the book itself um, you then start to if it's a bad book for example and people just say well it, we're, we're going it doesn't matter that it's a bad book because it's by a minority author um, you then basically put this forward this idea of okay but all indie sort of published stuff like that probably isn't going to be very good or it's going to be preachy or it's going to be not in the style that I want or it's going to have lots and lots of sex scenes which I don't want or xyz or I don't want to read a book which is all about internalized homophobia for a character um, or I don't want to read a book where they've completely disregarded any sort of trauma related to uh, the experience of being queer etc everybody's going to want different things um, and if you just use one big fat label as the most important thing above the book a lot of people are going to get angry disenfranchised and that will usually cause them to just go back to the safe option of what's on the shelves yeah which is the same which is the, you know, the stuff that is put forward as the norm. So what you're then telling publishers, main publishers, is that that's what sells, mm. other stuff doesn't. So basically other, you know, 
we're back, we're back to sort of more minority authors not getting picked up, not because they don't write good stories, but because people think they come with a lot of baggage. Yeah. And one of the other issues that I have, and I'm only going to touch on this very briefly, with the whole sort of the use of the labels, is that it also constrains authors who might not actually want to talk about some of their own personal experiences. So there have been situations where celebrities have been forced to come out for example um it's nobody's business what your gender is what your sexuality is if these are things which you want to keep personal and private or which you're questioning or which you're going you know which you're kind of currently transitioning through or things like that you are not obligated to share that information but you might for example, end up writing a book about that experience or you might end up writing a book with a character like that. And if someone says, hang on a second, but you're just gay, you can't be writing about sort of a trans person. And oh gosh, you know, this is clearly just... Because the other thing is that the moment you do that, some people will also immediately allow that to skewer that their perspective. Yeah. Um, and you're right to basically... People are, have the right to look at a piece of work and say, and and to criticize it and to examine it, etc. But we start to get into dangerous territory when we say you are not allowed to write this unless you meet X, Y, Z agenda, because for some of those agendas they might actually meet it, but not want to talk about it, um, not want to, and not have to talk about it either. Yeah, so we're back to the concept of basically someone who produces a piece of art being owned by the people who purchase the art, mm. which is really fucked up. That idea of sort of, I deserve to know the ins and outs of your life. Um, for example, with Ninth House, there is a scene that people are really up in arms about. Um, it, obviously, it was adult fiction. It was labelled as adult fiction. All the marketing and everything looked, it looked like adult fiction. Mm -hmm. But there was a scene where the main character, as a sort of prepubescent child experiences a sexual assault from a ghost <laughs> i'd like to point out and yeah it really kind of messes with her yeah. understandably it is part of the plot it's not done gratuitously lee bardugo had to come out and say that yes she had experienced sexual assault before people would back down and say that she had the right to write about it that's just which is fucked up no that's absolutely out of line yeah um people I'm sorry that I'm really upset now. I did not know that. Um, that is utterly unacceptable. Um, and it's one of the reasons why the fact that people sort of feel like they know authors now or, or feel like they get to have a relationship with authors now is so dangerous. And I think it's also a large reason why a lot of people like to be rather anonymous with self-publishing and things like that too. Yeah, understandably. And it's just... I mean, yes, it's the sort of thing that tends to happen to more hyped books and more hyped authors, but it isn't a reasonable thing to go, well, I've got this book, I took this away from it, and I need to know. Because you don't actually have the right to know, even if you want to. It's fine if an author wants to volunteer it. Yes. And you can speculate, but you've also got to understand what are the implicate, you know, what are the consequences of you speculating? For example, you might, I, I think it's it's perfectly reasonable to perhaps read something um, that you feel has really, you know, really, really hits the mark and to think, ah, the author must have experienced this too. 
um, you might feel sort of connected to them in that way. Um, and you might truly believe it, but you've also got to understand that that's no guarantee and you don't know this person well enough to, to know whether actually perhaps it was because it was a friend of theirs or they just did their research um, or they have an incredible imagination um, or they had something which was sort of an equivalent which they moved things over to. You've got to appreciate that um, yeah. and, and recognise that you don't have the right to their privacy or their life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so the whole thing for me with labelling is the hot is the who do you want to be thing. Because as writers, we give small slices of ourselves in our work. Mm -hmm. But as we've said, if some, someone read everything I'd written or everything Madeline had written, they wouldn't really know who we were. No. They might know about themes that we keep coming back to. And <laughs> I know there's the, the fan fiction joke, isn't there? Once is an incident you don't comment on, twice is a coincidence, three times and it's north for kink. Yes. Um, <laughs> And yeah, there's some truth to that. There are things that I know I keep coming back to, not necessarily because they're core beliefs, but because I haven't finished chewing those ideas over. And maybe it's deliberate and maybe it isn't deliberate. And that's that. That's fine. And it, presumably if you don't like me returning to certain ideas and feelings, then don't keep reading. <laughs> you know, you can put the book down. Um, but yeah, it, it's and that's the same with every other author. I mean, I'd love to say I know Stephen King because I've read pretty much all of his books, but I'm pretty sure I don't know him at all. <laughs> I know his public-facing persona, maybe. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> it's one of those things where I've had several times um, in, in, in various bits of writing that I've done, I've had stories which have involved cannibalism, for example. Obviously, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not something you want to experiment no. with. No. <laughs> not from the way you describe it. It's, hor it's always horrific. If you've read Madeline's cannibalism type scenes, they're always horrific. They always leave me with this sort of weird, gammy, sort of old blood taste in the back of my throat. They're that visceral. <laughs> but the thing is, like, someone can read it and go, well, she's got a thing. Um, and let me explain. The thing is that it terrifies me. It's one of the it's one of the things that actually really really scares me, and in that fear, fascination is the wrong word, but this desire to understand, um, and also to think about the horror of the situation, what that would do to a person to be forced into that situation, either through desperation, or because it's actually a part of their culture, and how different sort of scenarios change change that. Um, and how we kind of make our peace with it or how we understand it. So it's a concept which I was, I guess I was introduced to as a young child, you know, probably reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. My brother had this huge, amazing encyclopedia, which he would read every night when he was a kid. Um, and I liked looking at it as well. And I vividly remember one of the pages, which I always turn back to, which was about the French Revolution and it had this huge huge guillotine with someone being led up to it and there was blood on it and I would stare at it for hours because I was horrified by it, it I was tr but I was transfixed by it as well like what could lead to this level of violence and you know then sort of introduced to the idea of cannibalism just being sort of like oh god I, I, that's that's a concept that I could never even even have imagined and yet here it is and I've got to sort of question it and ask and um so yeah so it's an idea that I'm still chewing over because 
I'm so scared of it. <laughs> but someone else might read it and go, Madeline's got a thing and <laughs> clearly she craves human flesh. <laughs> Which would definitely be the wrong conclusion it's to draw from that so scenario. Totally the wrong conclusion. <laughs> There's like no writer really wants to be known as the colour of their skin, their ethnicity, or their sexuality or gender first. Or at least I presume no other writer does. Um, there have been times when I've had been, have had books reviewed and people have assumed based on my initials and obviously not looking at my author profile that I'm male mm. and they've they've said Ironside has done his research or whatever blah 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 and I'm always greatly tickled by these reviews firstly they're, they're generally positive reviews so thank you very much really appreciate them I'm glad you enjoyed the books mm. um but secondly it's kind of like I genuinely don't care what gender you attribute to me in a review mm. that you're leaving voluntarily on one of my books that you enjoyed <laughs> it doesn't matter my identity is not that fragile yeah I don't have to be known as a woman writer first in that scenario yeah yeah now if if I'd had a different set of experiences whereby uh, gender was very much on my mind as part of my identity, then I might feel differently in that scenario, I'd like to point out. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's totally acceptable, for example, if if you have consistently been told you're not gonna make it because you're a you're a woman or, or something like that. And then to be able to actually really want to very proudly pronounce and, and refuse to let other people misgender you. I think that that's totally legitimate and fair, but everybody's going to have a different experience with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I would want to be known as a writer or author. I don't need the qualifier in front of it talking about my sexuality, uh, my ethnicity or my gender. No. And I do get that in terms of write-ups and journalism, it's shorthand for people so that they can find the books easier or they can go oh well, I'm, I'm interested in this person's perspective mm. yeah but again it, it can be quite reductive I'm trying to think I'm trying to think of her name I want to say a, a Diamata Fauna who writes literary fiction and she wrote a book set in Croatia mm. um, she her father was from Sierra Leone and her mother is Scottish and she was born in Scotland and she found that her British heritage was getting airbrushed out to the picture every time anyone wrote an interview or anything with her. Right. And she was just getting put forward as an African author. And she's like, well, since I was a child, I have lived in, you know, I lived in eight different countries as a child and I was born to two very different parents. Yeah. So you're taking away half of my identity. I don't want to be known as the black African author. And I'm not actually writing about people in Sierra Leone. I'm writing about people in Croatia, which is obviously not my experience, but mm. I really felt moved by what I heard. And it was her point that, you know, you can have people from cultures that that, that are completely different technically. They're on different sides of the world. Mm. And yet actually the core values of those cultures are so similar that that you do actually have a great deal of insight. Yeah. Um there's a I can't remember the name of the scale there is a scale whereby um, I think Malcolm Gladwell mentioned it in one of his books about what different cultures have in common and it's really interesting that you've got places like Belgium and Denmark who have widely widely different opinions on certain cultural aspects even though they're like they're right next door to each other yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> 
it's one thing that I mean, Jules and I are obviously massive nerds about many, many things, but I, I'm very much a massive nerd about certain things. And one thing that, for example, I've found really, really enjoyable, which I've been sort of putting a paper together on, is the weird similarities between um, <laughs> medieval Ireland um, and uh, what would be the equivalent of period medieval Japan. <laughs> These two yeah. places on the other side of the world, so different in so many ways. And yet at the same time, I'm like, well, that's more than a little similar um, with certain things. And you actually look at it and go, how much of this is because of locations? How much of this is because of... X? I'm not going to go into it because it's a whole complicated thing, but it's an interesting subject. Um... <laughs> and yeah. funny sometimes. <laughs> It, it is really interesting and it's it's i mean there is a reason that england and france were at war for hundreds of years and it wasn't just over the throne there was a huge cultural clash mm. even though technically we're next door neighbors apart from you know the channel being in the way but you know for for the best part of a thousand years if not slightly more the cultural outlook was different enough that we really couldn't get on yeah and to be honest that cultural outlook i think is still very very there are still some massive differences it's i think i've made this before but one of the the funny things that i sort of noticed that my dad said to me was that he said ah um my mother would be have would have one of her friends over and they were they were french and he'd say if you put two French people in a room together, or two Mediterraneans, to be honest, but in this case, it was two French people said, if you put two French people in a room together, within half an hour, they will begin talking about food. <laughs> yeah. And he was right. And I have, I have consistently, consistently watched out for this now. And I do it too, within half an hour, we're talking about food. It's and, and it's like this is an integral part of our of of every part of our culture is the conversation about food. See, I've got to say that if you have two Irish people in the room together, at some point you will start talking about ailments, either your own, <laughs> your friends, your family. <laughs> I used to think this was just because I came from a long line of nurses and NHS workers and midwives and handy women and but, but no no this this seems to be a culture <laughs> And it still happens. You put me and my mum in a room together. At some point, probably within half an hour or so, we will start talking about medicine. <laughs> oh. My yeah. dad has suffered greatly over the years <laughs> with this. He's slightly squeamish, but oh, your poor father. So, so I mean, you and again, you could say you know the English attitude and the Irish attitude is actually still quite different. Mm. I mean, not so different that it's insurmountable barrier, not anymore anyway. But if you go back to sort of medieval era, it was so different again that. I don't know, we could really go off on one in history in terms of culture and, you know, cultural clashes are a different thing again. We could, yeah. Um, and we are supposed to be talking about labelling, so I will bring myself in. <laughs> this is me coming back. 
but but yeah it's it's all things to consider because lots of things inform people's personalities and identities and things so just giving someone a short label and then saying their work is this is as we've said reductive yeah the the work um, should be based on the work rather than necessarily just the author yeah i think what we're kind of coming round to is that we think that we need to stop encouraging this air of assumption being fact mm. we are all going to make assumptions chances are we're never going to meet the authors of most of our favorite books no or have much in meaningful interaction with them even with the advent of social media so yeah we'll make assumptions we make assumptions of people who star in movies and things yes um but then assuming that our assumptions are fact that that's the dangerous dangerous tipping point i think yes yeah it it <laughs> sorry i'm laughing because it's just like most of us won't won't meet sort of our favorite authors and i'm like <laughs> Except for me. <laughs> <laughs> she became my best friend. Take that. <laughs> there you go. Please look out for Madeline's next volume, which will be entitled How to Become a Successful Stalker and Get Everything You Want Out of Life. <laughs> Self help. Self help. <laughs> One, play it cool. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Two, give up playing it cool. Except you are a nerd. Hope she is too. <laughs> Giving away trade secrets here for free, Madeline. Yep. <laughs> okay, so there is a balancing act to be had. So as authors, we've said this before many times, but you do have a responsibility to think about what you include in your work and mm. ask why something is there. But story is king. Adding a value judgment to signal the reader that you don't share a malign character's opinions is terrible storytelling. So, for example... Um, We've got, let, let's say we've got a someone lurking in an alley waiting to stab the next person who comes down. If you stop the action halfway through to go, but he was a coward, so he struck from behind, which was a terrible... It's like, no, well, I think maybe the author was a coward because the author has clearly gone, oh, oh God, I can't be in the killer's viewpoint at that point in time in case anybody doesn't, you know, mistakes what's going on for what i genuinely think yeah it's far better to actually be sort of like ah he was quivering with excitement his fingers were slick on the the hilt of the knife he was waiting he could hear the footsteps of the person approaching sort of like desperate to sink the knife in kind of thing um and trust that the readers are not going to think that you genuinely feel like that yeah so it must be said listening to you describe that just now i am totally convinced that you have no i'm, I'm joking <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I just have a good imagination. <laughs> Is that what they call it these days? <laughs> yes, yes, they do. <laughs> so yeah, that's bad storytelling. Um, yeah. But it, you know, it, we haven't got time to go into it. But yeah, there are things that I don't feel entitled to tell stories about the struggle of, as it were. Yeah. But I wouldn't stop those things being in a book. Sometimes it's actually more disrespectful to pretend that something isn't there so because you don't feel that you are entitled to tackle it yeah anyway it's a difficult one there's no easy answer i guess is the thing yeah i agree and it's it's one of those things that you ultimately have to make a decision about and again i feel like you are totally allowed to n disagree with an, an author's decision 
you're totally allowed to say I disagree with the way that they handled this um, or I disagree with the way that this was represented but you've got to be very very careful about then making assumptions about why they have done that do your due diligence um, but I, it would be very hypocritical for Jules and I to then say but you're not allowed to discuss or or, or judge people for that because well frankly um that's all we do not all we do but you know what i mean <laughs> yeah we, you know it, it comes we've been doing this for what, six years now so yeah <laughs> it might actually be longer but yeah so we we we're not necessarily judging the character of the person but we definitely judge their writing yes <laughs> having said that you I mean you can see trends in fiction um at the risk of raising the ghost of terry goodkind <laughs> i do believe that he was someone who held some sexist viewpoints because it came out in his writing again and again and again yeah and it didn't really add to the overall ongoing and i mean ongoing story <laughs> and the sort of truth series um and it's like the way you view women it, it's like it doesn't actually change through the entire series of books so I think that might genuinely be how you view women but I don't know I never met the guy mm. and the few interactions I saw of him online led me to believe he wasn't a terribly nice person but again mm. I don't know him I just decided actually I don't want to spend any more time on you yeah um, it, which is also totally to. fair so, so yeah yeah absolutely um so yeah but i couldn't say that he was a bad person or that he secretly had rape fantasies over any woman he saw who like fit the right sort of description i don't believe that's true yeah and you have also no as as you've said there's no evidence to to claim that that to, to prove that that's true even if yeah. you do feel like that might have been the kind of person that he was, because frankly, you don't know him. So, no. yeah. And I'm unlikely to now since he's died, so. Yes, that <laughs> is probably very much going to, would very much get in the way of knowing most people. Um, that That's chapter nine of Madeline's book, you know, <laughs> a successful author stalker. Yeah, um... <laughs> Make sure they are alive. Catch them while they're alive. <laughs> Keep an eye on their health because it's very hard to stalk them. If... You have a limited window. Edgar Allan Poe is right out these days. <laughs> Don't even get me started on Shakespeare. Anyway. That boy can move. <laughs> He's consistently spinning in his grave for some reason or another um, <laughs> <and> he... <laughs> um, okay yes yeah, so just as writers should not be judged entirely by their work a book should not be judged in, judged entirely by its writer so uh, in the same way that you shouldn't assume something is great because a white male author wrote it you shouldn't assume something is great just because a black male author or a queer author wrote it uh, yep. Books should stand on their own merit. And I know that this is 
potentially a bit contentious for people because if you review a book and you happen to be white then you're worried about disproportionately harming a book if you give it a negative review because maybe it's objectively a terrible book. I read a book a while back which I objectively thought was terrible and really badly written um, so what I did was I just didn't give it a rating. Yeah. Um, you still got the benefit of my opinion because I'm afraid that's who I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you can just not give it a rating. If you've been asked to review it professionally, you can just write back and decline to review it and say you don't think the book is for you. Yeah. And while people may not believe this, and they, it's fair for them not to believe it coming from me, it's perfectly possible to have an opinion and keep it to yourself. <laughs> I do actually keep many, many opinions to myself, believe it or not. Well, the thing is, like, you also sometimes only share opinions with me or, or very close people, and I can confirm that there are many things that Jules has considered or had opinions about, which we have not discussed on Dissecting Dragons, and vice versa. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's the th I think the thing where I get a bit of a disconnect is when people review something, they decide it's terrible or it offends them. Okay, fine. And they seem to think it's their God-sworn duty to go out and like, tell the world on every social media platform available. And in reality, it just blows things out of proportion. And the, there's actually nothing really wrong with the book. Maybe the book's just dropped a clunker somewhere and a, a little email to the, to the editing department saying, by the way, did you notice this? I kind of noticed this and it's not great. Um, might have been more appropriate than let's tear it down and cancel the author before her first books come out kind of thing. Yeah. And I think this is also the other thing is, I think ultimately you have to make your own decisions about why, you know, you're going to review something or you're not going to review something. For the most part, if I'm not enjoying a book, I just will stop reading it. Um, Jules is an angry reader and therefore cannot stop until she's gotten the whole way through it. She will not quit. <sighs> I'm a, I'm a completist. I've got better at stopping if I'm just not enjoying something, but it used to be that I'd start reading something and if I wasn't enjoying it, I would continue just because it annoyed me more to stop reading. Yeah. Which I admit is insane. Yeah. Um, but for the most part these days, sometimes if I feel very strongly about something, I will leave a... I will leave a negative review, but I just don't really have time for it. Um, I just don't have time. Um, and I think one of the other problems with the negative review sort of things is that a large part of that wasn't wasn't actually about sort of telling people what was good or what was bad. It's It was very much to do with getting readership on your own writing in terms of negative reviews get more views. Yeah. And if yeah, you're sort of establishing is... yourself as a reviewer having funny negative reviews tends to you know kind of put you out there a little bit um and that is one of the difficulties now i'm not gonna lie i have read some of jules's um reviews where she has not liked the book um and i have laughed very very hard at certain turns of phrase um <laughs> And the way, the scolding way. I mean, Jules, when Jules attacks, goes for the jugular, let's not lie. But I always feel like your reviews are fair. Yeah, I'm not usually tearing something down just for the sake of it. And also, if I'm doing a... I don't do tear down reviews as such, but no. if I leave a negative review, it's 
um, you and it and I don't pull the punches. It's usually an author who is so huge that my review will make no impact. Yeah, if it's if I'm working with a just a just a regular kind of an author, I I don't want to. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. You just continue doing what you need to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more and more, I come to the conclusion that I just I'm just not the target audience for a book. Yeah. And it's a very rare book where I can't see there's any merit in it at all. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Well, um, right. Well, we've kind of rambled to a close, I believe. Um, yes. So what do you guys think? Yeah. Um, do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Do you think that sometimes there are exceptions to the rules? Can you just place any sort of flat rules on a, on a conversation, this, you know, uh, this nuanced, um, we'd love to hear from you. Please do get in contact with us. Uh, you can get in contact with us via our Facebook, our Tumblr, or our Twitter, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. We are always open to um, other sides of this very, very large discussion. And we hope that you have enjoyed the episode and that it's given you some food for thought. Before we go, however, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And this week, Jules, I think you've got something a little lighter for us. I have. So complete contrast to what we've just been discussing. I have been reading an urban fantasy series, which is only two books deep at the moment, but apparently the third one is coming very soon. Okay. It's by Gwen DeMarkle. Gwen DeMarco, sorry, not Gwen DeMarkle. Who's Markle? <laughs> Gwen DeMarco. <laughs> I just can't speak today. Um, and it's the Sophie Fiegel series. And the first book is called Sophie and the Odd Ones, mm-hmm. which sounds like it should be sort of like an alternate rock group. It, and it I kind of really want to super does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but it? But it's not. The main character, Sophie Fiegel, strangely enough, is kind of your typical urban fantasy heroine but she isn't sort of kick-ass tm or anything or snarky tm she's got a lot of warmth which is really nice she's got a lot of kindness which i really liked about Mm. her as well and yes she does crack wise uh, but it's funny and it's nearly always warranted so she's not snarky for the sake of being snarky um she starts a new job in on the night shift in a morgue um as a, a mortuary assistant which, again, I was like, oh, this is different. Normally they tend up being bartenders or mm. bounty hunters or something. Morgue assistant, this is cool. Because I'm a macabre little creature. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make a, a, a small joke there about you, but um, I've restrained myself and I want you to know that I've restrained myself. Thank you. I will give you credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she starts working in this uh, mortuary and... When she's helping to prepare the bodies and everything, she starts telling stories about the body to her her boss, who finds them very entertaining. Later on, slight spoiler alert, but she realises that actually the stories she's telling about these bodies, because they don't actually know who the people are, they're just Mm. preparing the bodies, turn out to be true. She's not telling stories, she's actually having these, these visions while she's handling human bodies she didn't know she could do this before because she'd never handled a human body before surprise surprise so it was a gift that she realized she had and then it turns out that actually her so-called human co-workers are not actually that human (laughs) and it sort of goes on from there and they're kind of a series of murder mysteries or the the first two books seem to be so far and Mm. they're a lot of fun there's a lot of heart and warmth 
um, there's a couple of weird turns of phrase like for some reason the author doesn't seems to use the character names all the time rather than pronouns which is very weird or reads very weird to me but anyway that aside if you kind of like the way I use places and settings and stuff in my books you might like these because uh, they're set in San Francisco and sort of like local pubs and bridges and, and what have you are kind of used in the same way. Oh, cool. Thank you very much. I essentially use your books as like travel guides, not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really, really cool. I will definitely have to check it out. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 